pray together and ask the Lord to help us as we look at his word. Lord, we thank you for your spirit. You've said that you won't leave us or forsake us. And so you've taught us to say, I won't be afraid. What can man do to me? We pray now that you would encourage us from your word, that you would direct us, that you would help us to be more like Jesus. Please take away the things that distract us. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. And I also pray that you would give me favor with those that listen to these words. We ask these mercies with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen. War, disease, the economy, our children, our grandchildren. We've got lots of reasons to be afraid, right? Apparently, the smell of fear, or perhaps the fear of smell, um, uh, can be inherited and passed on generationally. Scientists did research with mice. And what they did is they had the mice uh, smell cherry blossoms and then receive a small electrical shock. And the mice make the link between the shock and the smell so that when they smell the cherry blossoms and they're afraid. But the interesting thing is that that connection was passed on at least to two generations of mice, suggesting that there might be some genetic link to fear. And um, fear is so pre uh, prevalent, isn't it the case that we regularly need to be reminded and encouraged? We're going to look at a narrative that is all about fear. Uh, maybe you would say, well, when it comes to me and my fears, I have some mouse size fears. Uh, they mean, I, I feel nervous occasionally. Others might say, well, no, mine are more like a, uh, uh, a really angry pit bull getting after me. They're bigger fears. And then somebody also might say, I have lion-sized fears. And then I could imagine somebody before us today who would say something like this. All of those fears come upon me at one moment or another. Mouse, dog, lion. And they're so unpredictable. Well, you have come to the right place if you have any struggles with fear. We're looking at the passage that John just read for us, Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 23. So if you can turn to it, Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 23. Now, how does Luke organize his treatment in this narrative? Well, what he does is he says, look, um, the Lord is the one to whom you need to go with your fears, and the Lord is somebody who provides. The Lord is someone who directs and reassures. The Lord is the one who provides unexpected, surprising deliverance. And the Lord that we worship gives strength so that we can keep on going. Have fears? Trust in Jesus. He'll provide. 
He'll direct and reassure you. He'll surprisingly protect and deliver you. And he'll give you strength. Well, as we look at these verses, you'll notice right away, Paul is no longer in Athens. He's in Corinth. And the places are quite different. Athens, about 10,000 population, an intellectual center, uh, a place where there are more idols than individuals. And Athens was also a place where people were preoccupied with entertaining themselves. Corinth, 200,000 people. Uh, not an intellectual center, but a commercial center, and a place where people are really preoccupied with their idols. Poseidon, for example, the god of the sea. And that was important for a place like Corinth because it had two ports, one on either side of the city. And um, also Venus, you know, the goddess of love. And so into the city every night went a thousand prostitutes plying their wares. Well, Paul arrives and he tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that when he got to Corinth, he was afraid and he was alone. And so please notice now how the Lord provides for him. Uh, look at verse 2. He finds Aquila and Priscilla, who like Paul are tent makers. Verse 3, he's able to stay with them. Verse 4, he locates a synagogue where he can begin to do his ministry. And you say, well, why would Paul be afraid? Perhaps because in Athens it hadn't been a very great response to his ministry. Uh, he might still have been recovering from the beating he received in Philippi, and perhaps he's wondering to himself, well, what's before me here in Sin City? Verse 6 tells us that his Jewish audience opposes him, maligns him, is mean to him. And so he tells them he's leaving to go to the Gentiles. Do you get the ministry principle that Paul brings to the fore here? We're responsible for how we use our resources, right? Our time and energy, and that re then relates to the question, with whom am I going to invest my time and energy? And what Paul says here, and what the Bible says in other places is, work with people who are faithful, available, teachable. The Jews are resistant to what he has to say. Well, he goes from the Jews to the Gentiles, and look at verse 7. Who does the Lord provide a man named Titius Justice? He helps out. He's a God-fearer, he's a Gentile, and he has a house that's right next to the synagogue, and so now Paul can easily, without missing a beat, we think, uh, he can easily transfer his focus from the synagogue to this house that's next door. And he can keep on saying, there's new life in Christ. And we're told in verse 8, many believe. So let's pause. I wonder, who are the people that the Lord has used to care for you when you were afraid or alone? Who are some of those people?
I have a long list that I could give you, but let me just highlight a few. Bill and Katie June, dairy farmers in Oxford, they're next door neighbors. They were so kind and giving to us. We moved to Wilmington, Delaware, and bump into new believers, Randy and Ginny. And um, he's a corporate attorney, and they were there for us to encourage us. And um, we go to Green Bay, Dick and Melinda, he's a contractor, builds houses and new believers, and they are great friends. And we then go to Phoenix, and it's Jeff and Cookie. Long-time missionaries, they're there to give us their house when they're out of town. How very grateful I am for them, and there are many more. The Lord provides for us when we know, when he knows that we're afraid and when we're in need, when we feel alone. Well, the Lord promises to do for you what he did for Paul. And so what happens next? Look at verses 9 and following. Opposition is really, really hard. And so the Lord appears to Paul in a vision. And he says, don't be afraid. And we can imagine Paul thinking to himself, hey, wait a minute. When I was in Lystra, I was stoned and left for dead. When I was in Philippi, I was beaten and thrown into prison. Will Corinth be like that? And so the Lord makes this promise. I'm with you. Nobody is going to harm you. See it there in verse 10. And then he goes on and he says in verse 11, and there are many people in this city yet that are my people. The inference is, Paul, you're going to be able to have a continuing ministry in this place. God's word to Paul is, trust me, you're not alone. Nobody's going to harm you. More than that, more people are going to come to faith in Christ. I've never had a vision like Paul. Well, I've never had a vision, period. Uh, but like Paul, we have God's promises. And we can freely acknowledge our weaknesses. And then take God at his word. We get to choose to live with confidence rather than giving in to our fears because of who God is. I am particularly afraid when I'm around people that I think are dying. I feel frantic on the inside. Uh, I want to do something to help. And at the same time, I feel helpless as if there's nothing I can do. So. I'm in an emergency room down in Phoenix, uh, visiting relatives, and in the next little section, there is an eight-year-old girl who is very sick. She's there with her mother, some other family members, and the medical staff is whispering, and suddenly she begins to sob. It has dawned on her that her daughter has just died. And she bursts out, is there a priest here? Now, what am I to do? I say, well, I'm not a priest, but I'm a minister. That'll do. That's good enough. And so 
the medical people, they take the little girl's body, they take the mother and lead me with them into a side room. I am at the end of my resources. I don't think I have anything to give. And so what can I do? Simply entrust myself to the Lord. And he enabled me. Don't be afraid, the Lord says. Don't be afraid, first of all, because I provide. Don't be afraid because I direct and I have words of assurance for you in your weakness. Now what will happen? Well, Paul needed that vision because things are going to become even more challenging. He's preaching that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. You want to be right with God? There's only one way. Jesus himself said it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. He's also saying in his ministry that uncircumcised Gentiles can be part of the family of God. And so now look at verse 12, please. The Jews mount a united attack. And what they're trying to do is force a confrontation between the Roman government and Christians. Judaism had in that day uh, the sanction of the government. It was a legitimate religion. Gallio represents the highest court in Achaia. They come to him and they uh, say, we want Paul on trial, verses 14 to 16. So what is Paul going to do now before this tribunal? What will he possibly say? He's being accused. Before he utters a word, do you notice? Gallio speaks up and he says, now, if this were a matter of wrongdoing, I would take care of it. But this is just an intramural squabble and I'm having nothing to do with it. Get out of here. He throws them out. Those that are opposing Paul, they grab Sosthenes and they beat him and Gallio doesn't even do anything in response to that. And the point is that Paul is now enabled to continue to minister unhindered. Does the Lord keep his word? Absolutely, and he does it in unexpected and surprising ways. Paul doesn't need to say a word. Ever had to a deal, ever had to deal with abusive people? It's very difficult. My mom and dad taught me how to handle that kind of pressure. This is kind of the things that they said to me. First of all, reflect on when the Lord has brought you through hard times in the past. Just get that in your mind. Next, find some Bible verses that are appropriate and start memorizing them. Whenever you're distracted, go back to the Bible, in other words. Focus on the memory work, and you aren't able to think about two things at the same time, that and your fears. 
Then they said, feeling overwhelmed? Well, pray and ask other people to help you in your distress. And um, as you're going to sleep at night, review your Bible verses. That will also calm your mind and get it focused in a good direction. And finally, they would teach, they taught me, as you think about the future, anticipate that the Lord's going to see you through. He's going to somehow take you through these bumpy, uh, this bumpy road. He's somehow going to bring you through it all, and you're going to be able to rest in him and look back as one more example of how he's cared for you. So what have we seen so far? The Lord provides. The Lord directs and reassures. The Lord unexpectedly and surprisingly protects and delivers. Now, Luke is going to round out this whole account of the Corinthian experience. Paul leaves, and at Sencrea, he has his hair cut because he's under a vow, and we say, what's that about? Go back to Numbers chapter 6, and you will see that direction is given there for uh, people taking a Nazarite vow. And uh, if I understand it, it goes like this. Um, somebody wants help, and so he goes to the Lord, and he says, Lord, I, I, I'm really coming to you. Please provide for me. I take this vow. Maybe Paul did that because of the situation in Corinth. He was feeling afraid and alone. You take a vow, you let your hair grow. At the end of the time that you have vowed, well, then you cut your hair. And within 30 days, you take the hair and you go off to Jerusalem where you present it as an offering to the Lord at the temple. So that's the picture. And uh, apparently that's what Paul does but not directly. We're told in verse 19, he goes first of all to Ephesus. Verse 20, uh, he talks to people in the synagogue. They say, would you stay? He says, no, I'll come back. Verse 21, then he goes to Caesarea. Why Caesarea? Because there was a port there that was not too far from Jerusalem. We're told he then goes and visits the church, presumably the church in Jerusalem, and presumably Paul, who's a Jew, takes his hair, and offers it there as an offering to the Lord. And then he returns to his sending church, Antioch, spends some time there, and then goes to the other churches in Galatia and Phrygia, where he and Barnabas have done ministry. Presumably, again, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, uh, perhaps Pisidian, Antioch. Now, one of the things that's interesting about what we find here is that a lot has happened in that very brief history that we've condensed. A lot happened. But it's of little interest to Luke. How come? He fast forwards because he wants to get to the business that's important to him, which is seeing unreached people get the gospel and seeing churches planted. And by the way, that was also a big deal for Paul. He wanted to see people saved. That's what he gives his life to. He wants to see the church established where it is not yet established. He tells us that in Romans chapter 15, verse 20. He says, I want to see Christ named where he is not named right now. 
And the reminder is, don't be afraid. The Lord gives strength to his people so they can keep on serving him. Remember Isaiah chapter 41. Don't fear, for I'm with you. Don't be dismayed, for I'm your God. I'll strengthen you. I'll help you. I will undergird you with my righteous right hand. And as the Lord gave strength to Paul, so he promises to do the same thing for you, especially when you're feeling afraid. Now, that raises a question, though. When you think about the options, as a follower of Christ, which has the Lord laid on your heart? Are you more inclined toward strengthening existing churches, or do you want to see the gospel get to people that don't have any church in their language and culture today? It's an important question to ask and to answer, especially in light of what Jesus says in Luke chapter 10. He tells us, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. If you've been watching the corn grow around here, it looks like it's going to be a bumper crop. When Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, he's not talking about corn. He's talking about people. There are lots of people that need the Lord. They're all around us. And then he says the harvest is plentiful. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest field. Don't be afraid. The Lord provides. He directs and offers reassurance of his presence. The Lord is the one who unexpectedly and surprisingly protects us, and he's also the one who gives strength so that you can keep going. Now, let's just imagine, for the sake of the, of the discussion, suppose that all of God's people were moving from fear to more confidence, or we might say they're moving from fear to more boldness for the Lord. What would that look like? If we were to take that and package it into a person, what would that person look like? Isn't Jesus the one who fulfills the narrative that's here? Isn't he the one who lives a fearless life? I think so. Uh, think, uh, uh, think about some of the things the Bible tells us about Jesus. He comes to earth and he's obedient to death, even death on a cross. If that wouldn't make somebody fearful and want to run away, it would me. But not Jesus. He doesn't let his fear control him. And then what happens? He's without food for 40 days and Satan comes and tempts him and he says, here, why don't you take these stones and make them into bread? And what does Jesus say? It is written. It is written. It is written. I'm living by God's word. I'm not giving in to your temptation as tempting as that might be, Mr. Satan. Get away from me. And then there are his disciples on the storm-tossed sea, and they are scared. And here comes Jesus 
walking on the water in the middle of that storm toward them. He says, don't be afraid, it's I. And then did you notice what happened at his arrest? He orchestrates his arrest so that his disciples are protected. And then one more. 1 Peter chapter 2. What's Jesus like? He knew what it meant to be abused by people. And so we are told, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Gladys Aylward, did you ever hear about her? you know anything about her? I want to tell you. Gladys grew up in a working class family in England, born in 1902, died in 1970. She came to know the Lord as a young girl and wanted to serve him. And so she thought to herself, maybe I will be able to work with the China Inland Mission. And so she applied. He gave her a provisional kind of acceptance and said, well, here, work on your Chinese. And in three months, they rejected her application because she hadn't made enough progress in that language. I am no Chinese speaker. It is very difficult, though. So what does Gladys do? At age 28, she takes her life savings, she buys a train ticket, and she heads across Siberia for China, just at a time when the Soviet Union and the Chinese government are at odds in an undeclared war. The Russian soldiers detain her, and she manages to escape and eventually makes it to China. Well, when she's there, she gets a government job that sends her out into the hinterland of China checking on girls. Here's the reason. Back then, the custom in China was to bind little girls' feet. It was the attractive thing as a woman matured to have small feet. And one of the ways that people did that was by wrap, tightly wrapping those feet in place. Gladys got the job of being the enforcer of a new law in China. No more foot binding, and so she would go around. And in the process, she was exposed to lots of orphans. Well, it wasn't long after her foot binding job that war broke out between Japan and China. She's caught with a hundred orphans for whom she's caring. And so she leads them through the conflict, though she herself was wounded, she leads them through that conflict uh, more than a hundred miles up through the mountains to safety. Commenting on her life experience, she said this, I wasn't God's first choice for what I've done in China, but God looked down and saw Gladys Aylward and he said, well, she's willing. What an endorsement. Now, whatever you think about her theology, she is somebody who models for us uh, a little woman who's trusting in a big God. 
And isn't that what Acts 18 is all about? Living in relationship with the one that we worship and when you have Jesus as your Savior, then he shapes your life. And he shapes your life to be increasingly like him. And his word for you this week, I am with you. Live by faith. Trust me. Do not be afraid. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask you to bless it to us for the sake of Christ our Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing one more song. It is numbered 84. Would you please turn to number 84 if you want to read along in your songbook? <laughs>